0: Our Gospel reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 46b through 55. It's at page 44 of the New Testament section of your pew Bibles. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my rescuer. For God has looked with favor on the lowliness of God's servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. God's mercy is for those who fear God from generation to generation. God has shown strength with God's arm. God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God has helped God serve Israel in remembrance of God's mercy, according to the promise God made to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to, to his descendants forever. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ, among us. Please join me in prayer. Speak to us, O God, in the waiting, the watching, the hoping, the longing, the sighing, the rejoicing. Speak to us by your word in these Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. This is one of those times, again, that I wish I had a video in the sanctuary. Last December in his late night show, Stephen Colbert showed a video of Liam Neeson auditioning to be a shopping mall Santa Claus. Yeah, it's already funny, right? As the video opens, the beardless Neeson is wearing a department store Santa costume, but he's both a little thinner than the average Santa and a lot more intense. He puts on this incongruous Santa hat, and he glares into the camera and says in a low, growling whisper, I see you when you're sleeping. I know. You're awake, and the director says, Okay, that's good, let's try it again, maybe a little more jolly. And Neeson smiles, but his smile somehow comes across as even more malevolent. I I can't do it justice, there's going to be a link to the video in the printed sermon and online. He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness' sake. So you better watch out. <laughs> is anyone else a little creeped out by the lyrics from this Christmas song? I'm guessing most of us grew up with it, and here's the thing: I'm guessing that this portrait of the all-knowing, constantly judging Santa is pretty darn close to the image that many of us of God that many of us grew up with too. Author John Sweeney writes As a young child, I felt that my life was under constant divine surveillance. God watched with unblinking constancy as I played, walked to school, obeyed, and disobeyed my parents. I remember being quite sure in the first grade that God even used the television set to keep an eye on me inside the house. I would quietly interrogate the tube when I was alone in the room. What do you want? First, I want to say it's pretty typical for young kids to think about God this way. It's also pretty common for people to get stuck there, thinking we have to get God to approve of us by doing the right things and believing the right things. I've shared with many of you my own story and why that story makes me concerned about typical religious education. We tell the really important stories of our faith to our kids, And it's perfectly age-appropriate for them to understand these stories concretely and literally, but then they hit high school or college and they start thinking that these stories are a pack of lies and they decide that faith is pointless and stupid and they don't believe in all that stuff. To paraphrase George Buttrick, a chaplain at Harvard in the 20th century, I want to say, tell me about all that stuff you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in it either. Sometimes I fear we might not do a very good job of helping young adults move into a young adult faith. But the other thing I want to say is that Sweeney's question is a good one for any person of faith of any age. What does God want? Some authorities on the phases and stages of religious belief say that we start out thinking we know everything about God, And we grow into the realization that we don't know anything. But can we at least know something of what God wants for us and our world? That's why we turn to the Bible, of course. The Bible is a book about desires and hopes and dreams. Human desires and hopes and dreams, to be sure, but also we trust God's desires, hopes, and dreams for us. The Bible story begins with God's desire for a good and beautiful world of which we are a part. When things go wrong, when people enslave and oppress, people and God hope and dream of liberation. These desires and hopes and dreams inspire action, which is what makes them different from a wish. Wishing is a substitute for action, creating a kind of passive optimism. A kind of an everything-will-turn-out-okay complacency. So an important part of the Bible is the prophets. The prophets in the Bible are the custodians of the best hopes, dreams, and desires of God and the people. They challenge the people to act in a way that is consistent with those dreams and hopes and desires. And when they saw the people behaving in harmful ways, they warned them by describing the future that they were creating for themselves and their children and their children's children. The prophets didn't foretell the future the way that a fortune teller does. They predicted obvious consequences. It's like when you tell your kids that they need to do their homework or they won't get into college. The prophets also held up the vision of what is possible. That's what the Bible means by prophecy. One of our passages this morning is from the prophet Isaiah, a book that was probably written by at least three people over a long period of time, but it's attributed to one author. In today's passage, Isaiah 61, the prophet promises a great reversal of fortune for those who have had so little fortune. The poor whose lives have been so long filled with nothing but bad news get a gift of good news. Those long-held captive in dungeons and prisons of all kinds get promised their freedom. Those who for years have spent so many days dampening handkerchiefs with their tears get comforted and pointed to a day of smiles and laughter. Isaiah's descriptions of a better day were so inspiring that Jesus and his followers quoted Isaiah more than any other writer. But many other prophets added their own voices to this beautiful vision of hope. Joel describes the Spirit of God being poured out on all people, young and old, men and women, Jew and Gentile. Amos paints vivid pictures of justice rolling down like a river, filling all the lowest places.
1: Micah imagines
0: every person with a plot of land, a vine and a fig tree to sustain them where no one will make them afraid. And Daniel envisions the world's beast-like empires of violence being overcome by a simple, unarmed human being, a new generation of humanity. The prophets told the people what God wants for them. Peace and justice for all people. Shalom for all people. Shalom is a good word because it encompasses well-being of all kinds, safety and healing, as well as fairness and lack of conflict. In the centuries between the time of the prophets and the birth of Jesus, this hope for shalom for everyone never completely died out, but it was never completely fulfilled either. It remained alive, and in today's passage in Luke, We hear how it remained alive in Mary. The angel Gabriel has told Mary that she will bear a child. Gabriel then explains that Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, is also expecting. Elizabeth is getting on in years, so this too is extraordinary news. In haste, Luke says, Mary goes to see Elizabeth. When Elizabeth greets Mary, her unborn child recognizes Mary's unborn child and turns a joyful somersault. Elizabeth exclaims that Mary and her unborn child are blessed, and then Mary begins to sing. We know her song as the Magnificat, named after the first word of the song in Latin. And what a song it is. William Willimon tells the story of a college student telling him that the virgin birth is just too incredible to believe. And Willimon responds, you think that's incredible? Come back next week. Next week, we'll tell you that God has cast down the mighty from their thrones, has lifted up the lowly. We'll talk about the hungry having enough to eat and the rich being sent away empty. The virgin birth? If you think you have trouble with the Christian faith now, just wait. The virgin birth is just a little miracle. The really incredible stuff is coming next week. I have to wonder... If they really, really thought about it, would more American Christians, or Christians in general, have a harder time with the story of the virgin birth or with this song that Mary sang? Several biblical commentaries use the word revolutionary to describe the Magnificat. Mary's song blesses God for the victory won over the proud, powerful, and rich for the sake of the lowly and the hungry. This is not a sweet soprano solo. One commentator says it's more like Janice Joplin at Woodstock than Charlotte Church at the Metropolitan Opera. But it's all about God. It's about God's action, God's faithfulness, God's keeping, God's promises. It's all about what God wants. God moves, and the people on top who have organized reality for their own benefit, but at the cost of others, come under siege. God keeps the covenant, and a teenager, a nobody from nowhere, testifies to wealth redistribution for the sake of the hungry. The fact that it's Mary that sings means that God does exalt the lowly. That this happened to her means that the overturning of the inhumane order has already begun. She is lowly, and she has been lifted up. Now this is a good news, bad news proposition, isn't it? Revolution sounds pretty scary to most of us. Cornelius Plantinga writes, When our own kingdom has had a good year, We aren't necessarily looking for God's kingdom. Commenting on Mary's Magnificat, author Kathleen Norris asks, Have I been so rich, stuffed full of myself, my plans, and my possessions, that I have in fact denied Christ a rightful place on earth? Or am I poor and despairing, but in my failures and weakness and emptiness? more ready and willing to be filled with God's purpose. I think if we let this sink in, the answer for most of us is yes and yes. Many of us have much, but we also long for much. We lament the world around us. We lament the emptiness or pain within us. We, like the rest of the world, toda la tierra, are waiting for Shalom. So the question is, can we hear Mary's song as good news for all people? Not just for some, but for all. Can we truly listen to it and hear that lifting up the lowly and bringing down the powerful is good news for absolutely everyone? It is what God wants. Going back to that childhood God that's more like Liam Neeson's Santa Claus, Note what Mary's song is not about. Mary's song isn't about how God is out to squash us. It isn't about how she and her tribe will go to heaven after they die while others will be sent to hell. It isn't about believing perfectly orthodox beliefs. Mary sings about the God who saves not just souls, but real people with real bodies. We're so used to think of saving or salvation kicking in only after we die, that it might be more helpful for us to use a word other than save. Both rescue and liberate are perfectly good translations of the Greek. We know this because every time the Old Testament writers use the word save, as in God save us, that's exactly what they mean, rescue us, liberate us. That's why we switched up the words in the Isaiah and Luke passages this morning. God wants to save all of us. God wants to rescue and liberate all of us from whatever enslaves or oppresses us, from whatever deprives us of shalom, not just some of us, all of us, and God wants us to act in ways that help that to happen. I'm going to close with a prayer poem about listening for God in Mary's song, the poems by Susan Elliott. So please join me in prayer. Great God of the prophets and truth-tellers, great voice of truth who speaks through unexpected voices, great power of the universe who works mighty deeds from fragile possibilities. We gather here to know your presence and to listen to your truth. We listen in your presence. We listen for you. Let our listening reach to hear the voice of young Mary. Let us listen for her voice, the voice of an adolescent girl in an insignificant village in a marginal province far from the centers of power. Extend our listening to hear her where she may be speaking today. An adolescent girl in a village in rural China whose parents really wanted a boy. A girl in a remote native village in Latin America, leading the singing in a small church. A 14-year-old working for a tiny wage in a crowded factory somewhere, making our high-priced running shoes. A 15-year-old helping her village in West Africa recover from civil war. A high school student in a U.S. city resisting a culture of violence daily to attend school. Extend our listening God to hear the song of truth and hope you are putting in their mouths. Extend our listening God to sense the motion of the future you are moving in their midst, a future world put right. Extend our listening God that we may receive and affirm and listen with the eager ears of elderly Elizabeth, wise with years of waiting. Let us listen fully and deeply for the hope you are preparing. Let us greet your hope with Elizabeth's joy, greeting Mary. Let us feel the future moving in us as well. Let us listen fully and deeply for the hope you are preparing in us. Let us listen deeply to the truth you are speaking in us. Let us listen fully to the hope you place in us. Extend our listening to the deepest reaches of our own souls, God of truth. Extend our listening through the cares that each of us brings in our hearts this morning. Extend our listening through the financial worries and the preoccupations with our health, our concern for loved ones whose lives are straying out of control, our angers and aggravations. Our inundation with activity. Extend our listening into all that we bring today to hear there the transforming truth about our lives. Extend our listening until we listen with all that we are, with our whole beings. Extend our listening until we hear with your whole voice. Extend our listening until we become the voice. That speaks as Mary to say, my soul magnifies God and my spirit rejoices. May the listening of our souls enlarge your listening until we truly hear you from unexpected places in the farthest reaches of the earth and the most remote territories of our own souls. Extend our listening that we may magnify you. Amen.